Exodus 11, 1 through 10, and then we'll pick up in chapter 12, verse 29, and read down to verse 32. Now Moses records these words for us. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. And then skip over to chapter 12, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, we live in a culture that uh, is obsessed with uh, trying to defy the inevitability of death. Um, uh, 100% of all people will die. And yet we live in a culture that's obsessed with adolescence, youth, Everything trying to defy aging and ultimately trying to escape death. We live in a society that doesn't want to talk about death. We live in a society that doesn't want to face the reality of death. And when death is spoken of, it is treated with sort of a glibness and a denial that it's not normal. It's not natural. Death is not natural. Death is a judgment on man for his sin. The wages of sin is death. All of us are going to die, and as we heard this morning, after death, the judgment. And yet, the Egyptians were very different in their culture than we are. They were obsessed with death. Um, uh, The pharaohs were embalmed and placed in those pyramids and now are in many of the museums around the earth because 
they were obsessed with death and the, the other world. They, they remember they viewed themselves as if they were the sons of God. We've, we've talked about that. The Pharaoh himself viewed himself sort of as an avatar of whatever God they were worshiping in Egypt, whether it was the God of the Nile or, as we're going to see tonight, I think, the gods of death themselves, Osiris and um, Anubis. And, and, and they saw themselves as emanations, as it were, of those gods, even of the gods who had power over death itself, so that when they were embalmed and they were, they were put in those tombs, these pharaohs saw themselves as defying death. They saw themselves as having power over death. That was a way of them giving themselves eternal life, as it were. And so death was treated very differently in Egypt than it is in our own culture. And that's important because God reserves the most severe of the plagues um, for this realm at this time on Pharaoh and on the people of Israel for what they've done to his people and ultimately for how he's hardened his heart against the Lord himself. Now, as we look at Exodus 11, 1 through 10 in particular, and as I noted already, we're going to touch on certain things in chapter 12 because all of this goes together and there's no way to look at this without doing that. I want us to consider three things about this 10th plague. First, I want us to consider the relationship of the 10th plague to the spoiling of the Egyptians, the spoiling of the enemies. Then I want us to consider this 10th plague in relationship to the revelation of God's glory, the spoiling of his enemies, the revelation of his glory. And then third, I want us to consider the death of a substitute firstborn. So spoiling the enemies, revealing God's glory, the death of a substitute firstborn. We'll notice there that God now says in chapter 11, verse 1 to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and upon Egypt. This is, by the way, the first time that the word translated plague is used. It is the Hebrew word that denotes strike or blow. It has not been used. We commonly speak of the ten plagues. God has reserved that word for this final strike or blow against the Egyptians because it's going to be the most severe blow that he brings against them. And notice that the Lord tells Moses at the beginning, afterward, he will let you go from here. And then notice verse two, in light of what's going to happen and the Lord revealing what's going to happen to Moses, he then tells Moses to tell the people to speak in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Now, we oftentimes shorthand this, plundering the Egyptians. I'm sure you have heard that phrase misapplied every time believers try to talk about why they can listen to rock songs. I I love 70s rock. I have nothing against it. I don't think uh, plundering the Egyptians is oftentimes used properly because here in this context, The plundering of the Egyptians is God so giving victory over his enemies and the enemies of his people and so showing them favor that they are going to come out with spoils of war. The plundering of the Egyptians is going to be God giving his people a tangible evidence that he has destroyed his enemies and brought out the spoils from the battle. Listen to John Calvin 
Calvin says it was not enough for God to rescue his people from that cruel tyranny under which their wretched lives were scarcely protracted in great poverty and distress unless he also enriched them with large possessions as if they were carrying away the prizes of victory from conquered enemies. Isn't that awesome? It's not enough that God just delivers them. He is going to endow them with large possessions, as Calvin says, so as to carry away with them the prizes of victory from conquered enemies. That's awesome. That's awesome. God is so going to care for his people that he's not just going to meet their spiritual needs in delivering them from the idolatry of Egypt, because the Exodus is very much a spiritual redemption. God is bringing his people out of bondage, not just to Pharaoh, but to the idolatry that they're in in Egypt. He's going to bring them to the mountain to worship him. He's going to teach them who he is and what right worship is. He is redeeming them from their idolatry that they had joined in with the Egyptians. And yet it's not enough that he does that. He is also going to give them spoils from war, and he is going to care for their physical and material needs. That's marvelous. Um, you know, while we sort of revolt, rightly so, against health, wealth, prosperity gospels, and we should, there's another sense in which God does care richly for the physical and material needs of his people. God doesn't redeem his people so that all of them can live in poverty. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy, tell those who are rich in this present age not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who richly gives us all good things to enjoy. And the Apostle John in 3 John says, I I pray that you may be in health and prosper even as your soul prospers. So uh, the Lord Jesus is the savior of soul and body. Here he is providing not just spiritual redemption, he is providing material provision for his people. Now, he is also preparing them to give back to him in worship. They have nothing. They've been oppressed for 400 years. God is giving to them so that they will give back to him. How will this be used? Well, it will be used, won't it, in the building of the tabernacle and all the adornment that God is going to have his people do that fine adornment in the wilderness when they set up a dwelling place for God to inhabit. The gold and the silver, the tapestries, where did they get that? They brought it out of Egypt. God is going to put it to use in his worship and his service. Now, lest we forget, Israel is going to put it to use in worshiping another idol at the foot of the mountain. So there are great dangers in gods of gold and silver, in loving money. There are going to be cautionary warnings there. Nevertheless, the Lord is giving, as Calvin says, prizes of victory from conquered enemies. Listen to this. Calvin says, this, therefore, was the consummation of God's otherwise extraordinary bounty, that they departed splendidly adorned, and laden with precious furniture. That's awesome. God redeems them so when they come out, they are, they are splendidly adorned. Isn't that glorious? It's a picture, isn't it, of the gospel and how God redeems us and clothes us. Remember how Ezekiel speaks about this. God says, I made you beautiful with my beauty. I have clothed you. I have adorned you in the redemption and the deliverance that you experience. Well, secondly, though, and I want us to most uh, most clearly focus on this tonight, 
The tenth plague is revealing God's glory. Now, we have seen this already. As we've looked at that first plague and the ninth plague, God is revealing more of his attributes. God is revealing more of who he is. You know, in this tenth plague, the Lord is essentially coming to Pharaoh and saying, prepare to meet your maker. Who has power over life and death? Who is the maker of all men, including Pharaoh? Pharaoh is worshiping these false gods of death, Osiris and Anubis. He's worshiping these gods of the underworld, and and they are attributing power of life and death to these false gods. And Yahweh is coming, and Yahweh is saying to Pharaoh, prepare to meet the one who has power over life and death. Prepare to meet your maker. Now, if you were to turn back, and I'm going to invite you to do this, to Exodus chapter 9, turn back just a page, Exodus chapter 9, look at verse 14. In that seventh plague, notice what the Lord says. He says, this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You know where we see this played out so long after this when Israel finally goes into the promised land and Rahab, the prostitute, receives the spies And she says to them, and this is how we know that she's believed the gospel and how she's a believer. She says, we have heard what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh in bringing you out of Egypt. This is 40 years later. The pagan nations heard what the Lord did 40 years before in delivering Israel out of Egypt. And she believed that typical gospel that he was a redeemer God. And 40 years later, the name of Yahweh was still known in all the earth. That is the first big thing that Yahweh is doing toward Pharaoh. Remember, Paul picks up on this in Romans 9, everybody's favorite chapter. And and he says there that, you know, he says to Pharaoh, I'll I'll be merciful. Says to Moses, I'll be merciful to whom I'll be merciful. I'll harden whom I will. And for this reason, God said, I've raised you up to Pharaoh that I may show my power and make my name known. God God was doing all that he was doing to get glory and to reveal his glory to his people and to the nations. Think about this. We live in 2022. We are sitting in Charleston, South Carolina, talking about the exodus. That's amazing. Right now, if there is some ancient Near Eastern nerd, he may be having a conversation with like six other people about Marduk. But we're talking about Yahweh in this place at this time because what God did, he did to make his name known. Now, this final plague that Yahweh is sending, as I've already noted, is God striking plagues against the false gods of Egypt. Osiris and Anubis. 
And I want you to just listen to this. Phil Riken, he, he talks about all that God is revealing about himself in his victory over these false gods. Listen to this. Riken says, the God who sent the plagues against Egypt still rules over heaven and earth. Since he is almighty, he has the power to help us in every situation. Since he is jealous, we must not rob him of his glory by serving other gods. Since he is just, we can wait for him to judge his enemies. Since he is merciful, he will save us when we cry for help. Since he is sovereign, he is to be feared and worshipped. You see, Riken is saying to us in that quote that the things God was revealing in that 10th plague were that he was almighty, jealous, just, merciful, and sovereign. In what he does, God is revealing all of those attributes. And he is doing it so that he will be known in the earth. Listen to this. Riken again says this. The, the death of the firstborn obviously showed God's almighty power. It was another reversal of creation. Remember, we've talked about that. That first plague, God turning water into blood, hearkening back to God bringing blessing out of the waters at creation, and and then hearkening forward to him drowning the Egyptians in the water, judgment in the Red Sea. That was a creational plague. That was God undoing the blessing of creation, taking away life sustenance by turning the water into, into blood. And then we talked about that that ninth plague, God sending thick darkness, taking the light away. Remember at creation, the waters hovering over, and then God saying, let there be light, blessing. And then what's the final act of God at creation is creating image bearers, men and women, in his likeness to inhabit the world he has just filled with his bounty. Listen to this, Riken says, the death of the firstborn showed God's almighty power. It was another reversal of creation. On the sixth day of the world, God breathed life into the man he made in his image. But the tenth plague brought death to the living. You see, this is why this is the most severe of all the plagues. Notice the language. Moses says in verse 6, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Um, I know that some of you have lost children. Um, I've lost a parent. That was the hardest thing I've had to endure. The, the thought of losing children is incredibly painful. I, I, I have no idea. Um, and here the Lord is saying, I'm going to take away the choicest of the, of the children of the Egyptians and even of their livestock from the one who sat in power on the throne to the lowest one in the land, the slave girl who is grinding at the mill. There's going to be no exceptions or exemptions. It is going to be decisive and it is going to cut to the very heart of Pharaoh momentarily to the Egyptians. And here's the interesting thing. Even Israel will not be exempt. Now, it's interesting because in chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, notice um, the Lord says in verse 7, chapter 11, verse 7, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man or beast, 
that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Israel, Egypt, and Israel. Now, here the Lord is saying he's going to make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Uh, presumably, the dog growling is probably a reference to Anubis, the god of the underworld, who had a canine head. And what God is saying, that death is not going to touch the Israelites, not a man of their person or a beast. God is going to make a distinction between Egypt and Israel, that you may know that I'm the Lord. And yet, when we come to chapter 12, God says, unless you have the blood of the Passover on your doorpost, and and when I pass over and I see the blood, I will pass over you. But if I do not, the same thing that's happening to Egypt is going to happen to you. What's the point of that? The Lord is saying that we deserve the same judgment as Egypt. He's saying the church, those that he has called and redeemed for himself and formed into a visible church, deserves the exact same thing as the wicked nations who do not know God. Um, you know, when we think about this final plague, and many have said, how is this just that God would do this? This seems tyrannical. This seems harsh and cruel. Uh, there are a couple things we have to remember. Uh, the first of which, and the, the biggest of which, is that um, God would be just if he killed every one of us right now. Um, that's something that Christians come to terms with. We deserve judgment. That's why we flee to Christ. Um, we are no better than Vladimir Putin by nature. Get that deep into your minds and hearts. Deep. The nicest one among us is no better than the most wicked, animalistic, barbaric terrorist on the planet. You may have more decorum and dignity. You may be more restrained by common grace. But by nature, we are no better. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Now, secondly, remember that we've talked about how the Pharaoh was sort of an emanation of a visible representation of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped, and he was deified in that sense. And whenever he died, his son, his firstborn, would come to the throne, and he would be the next in line to be the son of their gods. And so what God is doing in this, especially with Pharaoh and his firstborn, is God is saying, I am the God over life and death, I am the only God of her life and death, and that you may know that I am not only going to strike a final plague on you that's going to cut you to the heart, I'm going to make sure you understand this in the clearest way possible, that you are man and you are not a God, and that if I want, I can bring an end to your dynasty instantly. Um, you know... While I need to hear more about the mercy and grace of God in Christ every single day of my life, and while I don't think that the Christian church should just go around saying, repent, repent, judgment, 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 we need a whole lot more sense of the gravity of the wrath of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and the judgment of God.
Because our view of God's holiness is way too small. And the view of our sinfulness is not great enough. And in so much as we come to understand that God's wrath hangs over the sons of disobedience and that we ourselves walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience by nature, we will better grasp the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. Because I will realize that I deserve the same judgment that God is here sending on Pharaoh. By the way, nothing will make you a more gracious man or woman or boy and girl than that. The more you get that, the more you will be merciful and gracious to others. The less you get that, the more you will be judgmental about everything outside of you. And you'll say, look at them. Look at how terrible they are. And we do that in really subtle ways. Sorry for the voice. We do it in subtle ways. I can't believe they would do that. We, we have the sophisticated conversations where we self-righteously demean others. When I come to terms with the fact that I deserve the judgment of God and I have fled to Christ for rescue and deliverance and I'm trusting in him, I'm going to be far more merciful and gracious with others because I am going to realize that the God against whom I have sinned so egregiously throughout my life has been so merciful to me in an undeserving way. How can I not be merciful to those who have sinned against me in lesser ways than I have sinned against God? Now, there has to, of course, be a substitute. Um, I mentioned the death of a substitute firstborn as our third point. You know, it's interesting to me when you read commentaries and books and listen to sermons on Exodus, at almost any theologian or preacher worth their salt is going to hold out the Lord Jesus as the Passover lamb, and rightly so, because that is so clearly and explicitly taught. We're going to see that next Lord's Day. Paul very clearly says in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So he is the Passover lamb. His blood goes on our hearts, and God passes us over in judgment. That is one of the most glorious gospel symbols in the Old Testament, perhaps the most glorious. And yet, almost no one points out, and I think it's so important for us to get this, that everything happening to Egypt is also a lesson for Israel and ought to be a lesson for us that there is one firstborn son that must die in order for God to deliver us from the judgment that we deserve. Now, here's how we get, here's how we get there. God is inflicting this judgment on Pharaoh because Pharaoh and his predecessors for 400 years have been afflicting Israel, who in Exodus 4, God calls my son, my firstborn. Israel, God says, this is my son, let my son go. Israel is my firstborn. And you all know that in scripture, the firstborn son is the heir. He is the one that inherits the blessing. Um, God so ordered that system that we would understand something in redemptive history that prepares us for the coming of God's son, his true eternal firstborn, the Lord Jesus. Remember, Paul says in Colossians, he is the firstborn over all creation. The writer of Hebrews says that the son is the heir of all things, that he is the rightful heir of all the blessings of God And he receives those blessings, doesn't he, by going to the cross and falling under the wrath and judgment of God. 
when we look at the cross, what do we see? We see the death of God's firstborn son. We see the death of the eternal, begotten son of God. And in seeing the death of the firstborn, we are assured that God redeems each and every one of his people who deserve that judgment in the firstborn. And then he makes us firstborn sons and daughters, heirs of all things in the son. Isn't that awesome? The son who is the heir of all things because he takes our sin and the wrath and judgment of God that we deserve on himself. He becomes the, the blessed source of the everlasting inheritance for us. Listen to this. I wrote this many years ago. If an Israelite did not put the blood on the doorpost of his house, the Lord would enter that home and execute judgment on the firstborn. God was going to execute judgment on the firstborn among Israel, both man and beast. The provision was clear. Judgment would fall on either the substitute or on the firstborn. Judgment fell on God's firstborn son at Calvary. In the death of Jesus, the believer underwent the judgment of God. By union with him, we died when he died. In his resurrection, we rose when he rose. When he hung on the cross, the justice of God did not pass over Jesus. He bore our sin in his body on the tree. He is the perfect substitute. The judgment of God fell on him for the sins of his people, just as the judgment that God sent on Egypt was the means of Israel's salvation, the judgment that Christ endured at Calvary is the means of the salvation of sinners. Isn't that awesome? Just as God's judgment on the firstborn in Egypt was the means of the deliverance of his people, so the judgment that fell on his firstborn son on the cross is the means of our deliverance. I want to encourage you this evening as we consider these things first to note the overwhelming goodness of God to us in redemption. He doesn't just redeem us. He redeems us and, and, and loads us with blessing and bounty, just like he's going to give Israel those spoils from their enemies. God, he redeems us while he adorns us with splendid adornment. Isn't that awesome? That's how good our God is. He doesn't, he doesn't just redeem us and leave us in a state of despondency or despair. Or, uh, he, he beautifies his people with his own glory and beauty in Christ. And then secondly, I want us to meditate on tonight and want to encourage you to meditate on the way in which God is doing everything he does here in the 10th plague and in all that he does to display his glorious attributes and to make his name known. He did that in you when he redeemed you. When he redeemed you, God did that to make his name and his attributes known in all the earth. Isn't that awesome? And then third, I want to encourage you to meditate on the fact that you do deserve the judgment of God, but God has provided a substitute firstborn in his son. Um, If you have come to see that in the past, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to show you that in a more glorious way today. We need that more than anything. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for these precious truths. 
We thank you that you did exercise your mighty power in striking that final blow against Pharaoh, in making your power known, and making your sovereignty known, and making your judgments known, and making your mercy known on your people. We thank you for your perfect wisdom. We thank you and praise you that you drew your people out and that you you made them beautiful, that you adorned them, and that you do the same for us spiritually. We pray also thanking you, Lord, that you have given us a substitute firstborn who took the judgment that we deserve. We pray that you would help us to see the Lord Jesus in that role more clearly. We pray that you would give us a great sense of what we deserve by nature and what you have done for us by your grace. Would you renew in us an astonishment at the greatness of the sacrifice of our substitute firstborn, your son, the Lord Jesus? Would you open our minds and hearts and flood them with a a sense of your glory as we contemplate those truths? We pray that you would show us more of the glory of Christ in this way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.